Hello and welcome to the Flying Frisbee podcast or the Flying Frisbee vidcast, I suppose this is because we're in video. And it's my pleasure to be talking today to a man, I suppose I can call him an old friend. I I hope I'm not uh, overstepping the mark. Uh, His name is Paul Kings North. He is a fabulous author, the author of maybe, maybe 10 or 15 books, one of them in something like original Anglo-Saxon that describes the uh, guerrilla Anglo-Saxon fighters during the Norman conquest. And I may as well plug this now um, while you're still listening. Um, Paul also runs fantastic courses for writers in the West of Ireland. And you go and spend a weekend in the West of Ireland and Paul goes and makes you uh, do many exercises. And some of you might remember my ode to a compost bin that I perform on stage uh, sometimes. And that was written standing by a compost bin in the back garden uh, of this place while doing one of Paul's courses. And it's become a stalwart of, of my some of my shows. So here we go. We uh, Let me uh, introduce you to him. Here he is, Paul Kings North. And Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this podcast. We did a fantastic podcast together maybe five or six years to, um, ago. And it got a great response. And um, why don't we start by... I've described that you're a writer and so on, but the sort of philosophical journey that you've been on, because I think I've sort of gone down the economic route of low taxes and small government to where I am, whereas you've gone down the more sort of environmentalist, localist route, but we've arrived at a similar place. So why don't we start by describing your journey? Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? Um, Last time we talked, I remember sitting in your front room looking at a map of Anglo-Saxon England and deciding that we wanted to bring back the heptarchy, the original yeah. division of Anglo, which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still entirely in agreement with. But no, I think we're in some ways closer together than we were then. But I mean, my journey in short has been, it's a curious one because I'm 50 years old now and I started as a kind of writer and activist when I left university. So it's nearly 30 years. I'm feeling very old. Um, in some ways, I'm in a completely different place to where I was. And in other ways, it's exactly the same. Um, and I was I started my life as an environmental activist and a journalist who wanted to save the world. Um, I was at the same time writing novels and poetry and wondering what the hell uh, the reality of things was, which led me on a kind of spiritual quest, quest, which has taken me to all sorts of places as well. But fundamentally, the worldview I have um, now is not so different from the one I had when I was 20, which is a worldview that A, sees industrial society as a huge machine that's destroying culture and nature everywhere it goes, and B, thinks that if there's any kind of solution to that, it's a local one. It's about, it's effectively almost an anarchist one. Um, now, I've, I've I've finessed that a lot over the years. Um, I've, I'm much closer to a sort of almost traditionalist position now, I suppose, um, in the sense that I think you need to have rooted cultures and communities that actually have a sense of place and time to make things work. But broadly speaking, I think that for the last several hundred years or so, this this technological society that I've taken to calling the machine has effectively kind of metastasized and taken over human life. It's eating away at the natural world. It's eating away at our cultures. We're now moving into a kind of depressing, boring dystopia that Aldous Huxley would have been proud to have been put on paper. Um, and yeah, my my way of seeing that differs from that my alternative to that is as i say not so far away from what it was 25 years ago which is which is local local power local community 
any way that you can find to kind of escape from the machine. And where I am closer to you as well is is my almost complete rejection of the state at this point, which I was always pretty close to anyway. But having gone through the kind of COVID response, the monstrosity of the COVID clampdown, I've I've become entirely cynical about all power structures. I'm afraid. So, <laughs> so that's where I've ended up. Well, and you were a left wing Brexiteer, which was a voice that went completely unarticulated in the political argument, largely because people like Jeremy Corbyn, who should have been articulating that argument, chose not to. And, but one of the things that frustrates me about not left-wing Brexiteers, but, and, and, and the reason why you've voted Brexit, and probably the same reason I did, was that fundamental thing that decisions are better made locally. And a diktat that, you know, all farming should be like this, set in Brussels, might not apply to some quirky little farm in Ireland on a hill, because the fact that it's on a hill and it's got this soil and blah, 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 means that that um, diktat from Brussels is just irrelevant and stupid. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if I was, a, I suppose I was a left-wing Brexiteer. I'm, I, yeah, I mean, I've always been... A I'm saying curious. left because of the environmentalist yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say so. Well, it's always been a frustration to me that people think environmentalism is left-wing. I mean, that's largely because the left has colonised it, but actually the original environmental movement was quite conservative with a small c. And it makes more sense to see environmentalism actually as a branch of traditional conservatism, if you like, because it's about conserving things. It's actually about having a sane relationship with nature, but it's been the the, the activist movement that has colonised environmentalism now is is a strange combination of sort of progressive leftism and global capitalism. Oh, it's, so it's awful! Of, like the worst, but it's the worst of both oh, worlds. To be it's honest. horrendous. Like it, it is good. crony capitalism in its entire entirety. It's also like all this ESG stuff. You know, I'm always banging on about this. The environmental damage of achieving net zero is just it requires so much fossil fuel to be burnt and so much, you know, metal to be mined. It's nuts and it's cronyist and and it's awful. And I'm actually working on an essay at the moment about conflation, how everything is sometimes deliberately, sometimes from stupidity. So, for example, with the Lineker argument, you saw the conflation of illegal migration and refugees and perfectly legal migration. And in the environmental movement, you see the conflation of pollution and conserving nature and environmentalism and all that kind of branch of environmentalism with wind farms, uh, climate change, um, electric vehicles and Elon Musk. And they're just not the same thing. Well, one of the things that's, that's happened with the Green Movement, I'm always banging on about this, especially to, to people on the right, because I hear a lot of people on the right uh, endlessly confusing the kind of so-called mainstream of the Green Movement with, with the problems that it's supposed to tackle. So the fact that, um, well, what's happened is that the corporate world has, has, has mounted a really successful corporate takeover of environmentalism <laughs> over the last 20 years. It's been incredible. And all of the activists have completely bought into the notion that that a climate change is 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 the only problem to really that's really worth focusing on to any extent, and b that the solution to that is always going to be technological, and, and what that means is the only guys who can solve the problem are the likes of Elon Musk or any other corporation that that happens to be in the game. And so, the old green movement that I used to be part of, which was really about localization and small 
scale living and small is beautiful and actually reducing the the, the, the consumption that we uh, are, are wrecking the place with and actually trying to live a bit more responsibly. That's kind of gone out the window. And we're, now we've got this global corporate environmentalism, which is also merged with the most self-righteous branch of the progressive left. And so we've got this kind of technological nightmare. <laughs> And all this WEF, and all this WEF smart cities, and and you'll own nothing, and you'll be happy. It's all part of the same blob. Um, well, it's interesting. I tell you what's interesting about that is that to, when I were a young lad, my first book was an anti-globalization, anti-capitalist, leftish book, an activist book, and I wrote that in two thousand and three. And back then, anyone who'd heard of the WEF who was protesting about it was on the left. And all the people protesting against the G8 and the World Trade Organization and the World Bank and all of these globalist organizations, they were on the left because that's what you did. You saw these giant, unaccountable business and government uh, bodies and you said, this is wrong. This is totally anti-democratic and we don't like it. So we're going to take to the barricades and all the right wingers were all defending this stuff. Now it's reversed. Everything is reversed. So suddenly the right are now the anti-globalist and the left thinks that anyone who criticises the World Economic Forum is a fascist and a conspiracy theorist. And I literally have no idea how this has happened. But again, it's that sort of corporate takeover of the the progressive left and of the Greens that I find so depressing. And what that does then is that anyone who is even centrist or conservative minded then assumes that if they don't like Greta Thunberg, they don't have to care about environmentalism. And then... (laughs) Then we're all out of the window. So, yeah, it's a it's a strange, it's a really topsy turvy thing that's happened. It is, and I think it's a lot of it has to do with the fact that the paradigm of left and right is just so flawed in itself. And you know, we talked about we've talked about it before the 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 the, the political compass, where rather than left and right, you have authority. You know, you have a scale of libertarian to authoritarian, as well as left and right, and you have a have a cross. And I think, you know, coming back to that thing, we probably both find ourselves somewhere in the libertarian centre, <laughs> having been down either side of the quadrant to get there, if you see what I mean. Well, you you know also that the, the Brexit vote was at least partly driven by this unrepresented constituency of people in Britain, and, and they're unrepresented elsewhere as well, who are quite economically left, but also quite culturally right, if those terms mean anything yeah. at all. So, you know, fairly, fairly, not, not not particularly traditionalist, but fairly socially conservative in some ways, um, at least don't want things to change too radically. They, you know, they they value their country and they value their culture and that sort of stuff. But they also want to have a fair country where there's not a huge gap between the rich and the poor and there's a good health service and people don't sleep on the streets. And that that constituency is just not served by any political party in Britain or America, as far as I can see. So you've got this huge gang of people out there who would certainly have fitted into that category of left Brexiteers that you're talking about as well, who just yeah. don't have anywhere to go. If you if that's if that's who if you if you would like to see relatively fair economics but relatively conservative culture, you haven't got anywhere to go. You've you can either go to the Tories who want to just well, they're all about the money as far as I can see and they're not interested in the culture, or you can have the Labour Party who might nationalise some more stuff, but they'll, you know, open the borders at the same time. And um, there you go. So there's no there's nowhere to go for this large I just think number the of difference, people. There is nowhere to go. But the, and I think the difference between Keir Starmer's Labour Party and and the Conservative Party of the last ten years is so marginal as to be practically indifferent. They're both basically social democrat parties. 
Well, you've got these two, as far as I can see, there were, it's almost like the technocrats have got back into control, haven't they? You had a sort yeah. of period from 2016 where there was this kind of chaos and you had Boris Johnson and you had Jeremy Corbyn and you had all this sort of stuff that was happening, bubbling around. And it looked like things might change a bit, you know, which would be shocking. But the technocrats are back. So you've got Rishi Sunak and you've got Keir Starmer, you've got a banker and a, a lawyer, basically, running the shop again. Everything's fine. The ship is back on back on course, um, which is a bit of a tragedy, really, because it's like what happened in 2016 with Brexit was a chance for something to change. You know, a crack was opened and it just didn't it didn't get seized. Yeah, that's the big disappointment. Now, I want to talk to you about your views of globalization because I am slightly uh, I've got mixed views on that, but we're going to come back to that in a second because I want to come back to your original point about environmentalism and what you were describing in your opening uh, sort of passage, if you like. And, and it's to sort of describe what is the ideal environment? What is the ideal way for the countryside to look? Now, where I'm going with this is, you know, how much of it should just be left alone and no human dealings whatsoever and how much should be curated who decides who should curate it and in what way should they curate it and i'll use an, an example like people talk about england's green and pleasant land but for me when i look at the english countryside i just think there are too many fields and they're pretty monocultural and yeah, the hedges are beautiful and, and you, t you sort of take a step back and you look at a view with loads of fields in it and everyone goes, isn't that beautiful? And I'm like, well, no, it would have been much more beautiful if that was thick woodland uh, or, or wilderness of some kind. And so, but then at the same time, I can also see when you go into sort of curated parkland, how beautiful curated parkland can be. And then the most local version of curated parkland is your garden and gardens are stunning, you know, because they are, they're as local as you can get. And if you've got somebody who likes gardening, managing their garden for them to enjoy and live in, gardens are probably some of the most beautiful places in the country, but they're very curated and man-made. Um, and then you you go from there into there's, there's various um, farms that are being rewilded, a lot of the time <laughs> bankrolled by the European Union. And I read that book, Rewilding, about that farm in Sussex. And I went to the farm in Sussex and I rather liked it. And I liked seeing the, you know, the pigs and the and the bison and all the rest of it walking around. I also saw a mink there, which I was less keen on. But anyway, um, so do, do you know where I'm going with this argument? What's the what's the right answer? Well, if I was designing a utopia, which, of course, I wouldn't. Um... I mean, look, I'd say, I'd, I'd say this. So I've got a few acres of land here in Ireland, um, the two, two and a half acres that we bought with a little house where we live. And we've been here for nearly 10 years. And one of the things we started to do when we came here, although we stopped doing it after a while because we, we decided to sort of let the land do what it wants to some degree, was, was apply these permaculture principles, which the Greens have been keen on for a long time. Permaculture was developed in Australia. Um, back in the 60s or the 70s, I think. And it's quite a good set of principles for how you manage the land. Uh, and effectively, it's kind of a system of rings. So say you had your house at the centre, then surrounding your house would be your vegetable garden and your fruit garden. And surrounding that would be your flower garden, your lawn, whatever you had. Surrounding that maybe a bit further out, you'd have 
maybe a small woodland, some nut orchards, and then round at the, the, the end of the sort of concentric rings, you'd have wild spaces. So you've got a bit of everything, right? So some of the land you're cultivating for yourself, some of it's kind of semi-wild, some of it's wild, you leave it alone or even replant it. We've replanted about an acre of land with native trees over here, for example, because there's very few forests in Ireland. It's the least forested country in Europe. So Is that because the English uh, cut it all down? Well, it's one of the reasons. Yeah, absolutely, it absolutely is. They cut it down for the warships, but it's not. I mean, the Irish have continued to do it for the last hundred years, unfortunately. I, um, so to come back to the point you made earlier um, about uh, appropriate scale, right? So you'd have to look at the landscape and say, what's appropriate for this landscape? Some landscapes are appropriate for sheep farming. Others are appropriate for forests. Others are appropriate for more intensive crop growing. If you were being intelligent, you would have an ecological farming policy and a landscape policy where you would say, yeah, we need a we need a balance of all these things. So in a country like Britain or Ireland, you need more wild places. That's why rewilding is a good idea. Um, but at the same time, you need to be able to feed yourself so you're not importing the food. Um, if you had government that was or culture that was locally responsive rather than imposed from the top down, it would be something you'd at least be able to, to take a stab at. Um, but you know, the other thing to say is that we're, we're still living theory, in a you could, if, intensive if you, farming. Yeah, I mean, if you describe your little rings, which, by the way, I mm. love, and mm. I'm I'm guessing that the fruit and the veg is closest to the house because that requires the most management. And also, if you're going to pick some beans and it's raining, you know, you want that to be next to your next okay. to your front door. So exactly that. And you want to be able to watch for pests and that kind of stuff. So the stuff that's furthest away from the house, you pay less attention to. And you have, a, you know, you have spaces where that basically belong to other creatures as well. You don't go there very much. OK, so, so if you had a bottom up, if you had a bottom up thing and, you know, 65 million people in the UK, 65 million acres, everyone gets their acre each and everyone mm. does does their little rings on their little thing. I mean, of course, that's not going to work. But if 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 everyone who did have some land applied your principles and then you extrapolate that up, then it works quite well, doesn't it? At a, well, at a national you're, level. What you're describing is distributism, right? So you, yeah. I'm sure you know what that is, right? This is Chesterton and Belloc's notion of, of an equally distributed property that was supposed to be a middle ground between capitalism and communism. And in itself, it was based on Catholic social teaching about how to how to justly um, distribute land. So Chesterton particularly was very keen on this idea, which goes right back in English history, that everybody has a right to a piece of land. And that's how you have a decent society where people have a stake in it, literally, because they have a yeah. piece of land. Um, communism attempts to deal with with the problem of capitalist concentration of land, but it deals with it by taking all the land into the hands of the state, which makes it even worse. So on the one hand, you've got capitalist concentration. On the other hand, you've got state concentration. And Chesterton's idea is you distribute the land more or less equally to everybody. So it's a bit of a thought experiment. But as a basis for actually living, it's pretty good because some people would treat that land well and some people wouldn't and some people would sell it to others and all the rest of it. But broadly speaking, you'd have at least the possibility of doing something radical and appropriate with the place you were actually in. And of course, if land is fairly equally distributed as well, then it's hard for somebody to destroy large amounts of it on their own. So, you know, this uh, that's that's again been a sort of a principle of mine forever, really. If that sort of thing were to happen, which it never will, but no. if it were, it would be exciting, you know? No, I mean, my, my big philosophy, Paul, is it, it was a line in one of my books, which was find the right answer, realise you'll never see it in your lifetime, and advocated mm. anyway because it's the right answer. I don't know if you've read the book um, The Breakdown of Nations by Leopold Kaur. 
No, I know of it. You no. like, you'd like this. So this is a book that uh, basically makes exactly the same case on a global scale, that all the nations should be broken up into very small nations, because then it wouldn't even matter how they were governed. It wouldn't matter if they were communist or monarchist or democratic or fascist. They'd be so small that people could control their own rulers and throw them out if they wanted to, and they'd all be very responsive. And it goes through this. It, it, it makes a very good case, actually, that the most creative and interesting nations in history have all been small nations, yeah. not big ones. The big ones have all been a disastrous, static mess. The small ones have been creative. And then there's a chapter in the book entitled, Will It Happen?, and it's just a one-word chapter, and it says no. <laughs> I liked it. It's, it's, it has the virtue of honesty. It was very good. So, um, but the other thing to say about this is that By what the we're way, actually talking about you know, is the richest... how a lot of things used to happen before modernity. I mean, this is how rural societies. Carry on, carry on. Sorry, we, we've got a lag. Carry on. Sorry, no. I'm just going. I'm, I'm just going to say that you know we can we can say that this sounds like a pipe dream, and it sort of does from where we are now. But this is how early modern or medieval England worked before the enclosures. You know, it's how much of the world has always organized itself in terms of small communities, reasonably sustainable farming patterns, traditions that are passed down for managing culture, governing local areas. You know, most places in the world were run like this to some degree anyway. So, you know, it can can work, but it it can't really work under the kind of all-seeing techno sauron eye of, of industrial modernity no i mean i, I i'm I, i'd let me question that point that you've made about you know early early medieval and dark ages and so on you know the life of the serf was not that good and you know the lords were pretty ruthless bunch and they enjoyed quite a lot of luxury relative to others in society so what do you say to that Sounds like now, doesn't it? <laughs> Techno surfs, digital feudalism. Yeah, of course that's true. I mean, it's it's always good not to romanticize the past. There's never been a perfect system, but just in terms of how villages operated, it's possible to have systems that balance, for example, woodland and pasture and uh, fields and hedgerows and the rest of it. It doesn't mean you have to emulate the political system. We probably don't want feudalism or serfdom or slavery back, but you know, it's possible to manage the land i think in ways much better than, than we do now we all know it's possible we all know it's possible but that we also all know why it's not happening is because of the interests that are profiting from from the system as it works now and it's also because that we love the cheap food and we love the with the kind of digital life you know so we're all taking part in this yeah uh, everyone's a hypocrite when they have to pay well that's usually the way it goes <laughs> and we can all come up with good systems but we'd have to take we'd have to take the hit from things changing. I mean, one of the things I've always thought, which I still think is obvious, is that if we wanted a if we wanted a world that was more humane and and cleaner, better for nature and people, we'd have to have less stuff. There's no way you can consume this amount of junk and rubbish and 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 have everything on tap at the press of a push of a button, especially not for eight billion people, uh, and expect it to work. Because the only way you can make a consumer society work for billions of people is to have this kind of hive mind technotopia in which everything's run by highly efficient machines and we're all, all sort of cogs in the wheel, which is the direction we're going. And that's the World Economic Forum vision, right? And the reason they have that vision is they want to globalize sort of middle-class capitalist life for everybody. And the only way to do that is through this kind of Huxleyan system of monitoring and control because the world's, there's too many people and they want too much stuff. 
So that's the paradox. If you want more freedom, I think you have to have less stuff. Have you, are you familiar with land value tax as a concept? No, I don't think so. Okay, so this was a, this goes all the way back to the physiocrats of the, I'm going to say the 18th century, possibly, you know, um, in sort of pre-revolutionary France. And it's all to do with the concept derives from natural law as opposed to positive law. And, but it was, the man who made the idea popular was a, a um, 19th century American philosopher called Henry George. And he called it the single tax because this is the only tax you would pay. So there'd be no other taxes, no income tax, no corporate, no VAT, no fuel duty, none, nothing, just this one tax. And in fact, the game of Monopoly was devised to illustrate the injustices of a monopolistic land system. It works. And it, 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 it illustrates it perfectly. <laughs> and this book, Progress and Poverty, was a big hit. It was a, I think it was like a top 10 book in the late 1900s, just, just espousing a, a tax. But the central idea of the tax is that everything that is created by nature is should be shared by the community. We'll come to what the community actually is at a moment. But everything that you have created or that has been created by some kind of human endeavour should be yours and yours to keep because you made it. So if you take a plot of land, the land was always there. Nature made it. Hmm. But the house you build on the land was created by you. Now, if the value of your land... So his idea was that you should be taxed on the, the uh, a, a, a portion of your... You pay a tax each year based on the value of the land, excluding what is on it. Okay, and mm -hmm. and so, for example, let's say um, the Irish Railway Service comes and builds a really busy station at the end of your road. And so suddenly loads of people start using the station at the end of your lo load and the, the, the value of your land dramatically increases. Well, it's not because of anything that Paul Kings North has done that's increased the value of his... I know that would be horrible to you, but let's just assume you were a, a greedy capitalist. The... the the, the value of your land would increase dramatically, but not because of anything you've done. It's because of the needs of the community and the investment that's come. Mm. Uh, and, and, and so why should you uh, benefit from the sole increase in the value of that thing? So if you want to carry on using that land exclusively and you want the government to protect your property rights and so on, then you need to pay a rent. He didn't call it a tax, actually. He called it a rent a rent to the community based on the underlying value of that land. And the beauty of this tax is, is it's transparent and it's immediately felt. And so the only, and the only people that would pay it are those that are actually uh, invested in society. And so, because they're the landowners. And if the government is doing too much, you know, it's spending too much money on overseas wars or whatever, you know, it's wasting too much money, then your tax goes up immediately and you feel it and you go, no, not paying the tax uh, or, you know, or we're voting in a different government. And so immediately it builds a very healthy relationship between landowner and 
and um, government. The one holds the other to account. And it, it sort of it enables the, 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 the taxpayer to hold government to account, particularly if it only happens locally and we're living in an Anglo-Saxon heptarchy or even better, an Anglo-Saxon, you know, I don't know what, you know, twen- whatever 20 is, ventarchy or whatever it is, <laughs> rather than just seven. But do you see what I mean? And, and yeah. that is the only tax. And the idea is, is that the fundamental idea is that what nature gave us is owned by every, everyone and what you made is owned by only you. Mm-hmm. So if you don't own any land, you don't pay anything, right? No. Okay. Yeah. So you could just live in a canal boat. Potentially. Yeah. But then, then you would, you would have to pay mooring and all that based on, yeah, of course. because somebody's yeah. got to maintain the rivers. And, you know, mm. if we were to have it now, you know, people go, farm owners hate it when I suggest it because they think they're going to be hit with a huge tax. But the mm. reality is farmland is worth nothing uh, mm. relative to prime city centre real estate. It's got not got planning permission. There's not a lot you can do with farmland except grow stuff on it. Whereas, mm. you know, the Duke of Grove, the Duke of Westminster, the Grosvenor Estate or whatever it is, or the Queen, the, the Crown, would pay an enormous amount of land value tax because mm. they're occupying all the best real estate in the country. Mm. Well, it's not because of anything the Duke of Westminster's done that the Grosvenor Estate's worth so much. It's because London mm. sprung up all around it and, mm. and suddenly the Grosvenor Estate's gone up in value. Mm. Did you ever see that interview with the uh, Duke of Westminster before he died? He was no. being interviewed by... It was very good. It was a few years ago and he was being interviewed by... a um, young student i think for some business paper and the student said to him uh, tell me he said uh, what advice would you give to young people who want to emulate your success in life and the duke of westminster said have an ancestor who was friends with william the conqueror <laughs> <laughs> that summed up that summed up british society and politics quite well i thought but yeah a good idea you can sign me up for that yeah yeah he he also like he obviously had a, I mean, I think that the, even today, if you have a Norman surname, you're likely mm. to be on average 15% richer than if you have a Saxon surname. Absolutely. That is true. Yep. And you're likely and, to own more land as well. And all of the landowners are still descended from the, the winners yeah. of the Battle of Hastings, the big ones well, anyway. All, all of them, but a lot of them have now gone because of inheritance tax and they didn't mm. put the land in trusts and all the rest of it. Right. But yeah. But those that still have are off Norman. And but the other thing that massively benefited um, the Duke of Westminster's estate in particular, and also the Duke of Bedford and the Earl of Cadogan, was the Corn Laws um, mm. uh, in the um, uh, in the 1800s, because they made so much money out of that protectionism, selling their corn at inflated prices, something mm. that globalism would have solved, and we can dovetail into globalism next. But but because we would have been able to import corn from America and Russia, but we couldn't. Um, and they built those estates in London with the profits they made on the back of those corn subsidies, basically. So here's a question then. So if we're looking at England, particularly Britain as a whole, actually, Chesterton, again, he said Britain became a capitalist country because it was already an oligarchic country. In other words, because the land was concentrated in so few hands already, largely due to the Norman conquest, it was much easier for the country to kind of segue into into industrialism first because you know the same guys could just evict their tenants and enclose the land through parliamentary acts and and then funnel the whole thing into a factory system so do you think that that level of land concentration is one of the problems britain's got and if it is what would you do about it would you think that tax would sort it out because it might not well uh, there's no way that 
like having written just written a book about tax, one of the golden rules about tax is that you can't levy new taxes in times of peace. Hmm. You have to have a crisis of some kind and then you get the new tax through on the back of the crisis. So history is littered with people who tried to impose like Margaret Thatcher's poll tax was Mm. it was actually not it was quite a sensible tax. And she was trying to make local government accountable. But the whole thing got turned on its head and she ended up becoming accountable. But she was trying to bring accountability to local local government. Um, But that brought her down. And, you know, do you remember like Osborne's pasty tax and the tampon tax? And, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. and they all, none of them worked. But then, you know, the financial crisis comes along and we have quantitative easing, which is, you know, it's just another form of tax. And if you'd said, we're going to print all this money in peacetime, everyone would have gone, no. But, oh, no, crisis, quantitative easing. Similarly, with all the furlough and so, and so on that happened um, post, uh, it, it, uh, during COVID. So, so the solution in my opinion, and the way to equalise land ownership through natural market forces would be this single tax. But it is quite a difficult concept to explain. The We talked about conflation earlier. Income and wealth are forever being conflated. They're not the same thing. They're one often leads to the other. But mm. income tax, we rely... Um, you know, income tax is about 50% of government revenue comes from income tax. The people with the biggest income tend to be workers. They're not always the people with the most wealth. And Mm. so, you know, you're often taxing people. That's why it's so hard to progress in this country because you're taxed heavily uh, on your earnings, which makes it very hard to save up enough money in order to actually buy assets. We don't tax Mm. assets. So we tax, um, you know, the the catchphrase is tax land, don't tax labor. Um, but we tax, yeah, we tax labour, we don't tax cap- capital. So that's the you know, fundamental, you, you design a society by the way you tax it. And if we are to sort of save the world and reform society, then, you know, your patient zero is the system of tax. That's where it starts there. So if we're designing utopia, we get rid of all taxes and just replace it with a simple land value tax. But no government who pledges to do that is ever going to get elected because the media will just smear him to death the arguments too hard to explain in in sound bites and the vested interests will make sure you never get your way it suits mm. the powers that be that people are with on on uh, the income is taxed heavily it suits mm. um the wealthy yeah it's almost as if you know it's almost as if if you had a party that was called something like for example the labor party it would not want to tax labor but would like to tax rich landowners instead wouldn't that be something yeah Absolutely. Yeah. But the, a man, the middle, can, a man the, can dream. It's the middle classes who pay the most income tax. Yeah. And and they're the, just the people that you were talking about with your WEF. So, let, but let's move from there, Paul, to globalisation. And, and so, in that case, so go on, no, go on. You, you go, you go. We've got a slight lag, but you go with uh, when I said about the middle class and the WEF. You, you carry on. No, no, I was just going to ask you something about the political system, actually, but it, we, we might be able to get there from globalisation. I mean, it seems to me just, again, talking about Britain, uh, I mean, in some ways in Ireland here, it's even worse, actually. The political system is basically non-existent. In Britain, you've got these two parties that once represented something. Um, there was a party that wanted to conserve things, and there was a party that represented Labour, and then there was another party that was broadly liberal. Um, they don't really mean those things anymore. It's a kind of uni party of you know, global capitalists on each side to slightly different degrees. 
here in Ireland, as I say, it's even worse because the two political parties here stem from the civil war a hundred years ago. So they basically, they're the two factions of the civil war that were fighting each other over the Anglo-Irish treaty. And now they're even more of a UD party than they are in Britain, than they are in Britain. And they're actually both in government together at the moment with the Greens, uh, having spent 70 years attacking each other as evil incarnate. They're governing absolutely fine together. They've got a rotating prime minister and they're both doing exactly what um, the EU tells them and what the what Silicon Valley tells them. Uh, and the media are, I mean, if you think the British media is bad, the Irish media doesn't have a dissenting voice to be seen. It's quite astonishing, actually. I mean, it's a much smaller country, so it's there is that. But it's um, there's an absolute monoculture. And the same is true in Britain. And what we also saw during Brexit, even with the Brexit party popping up and with UKIP popping up, um, is that even if you do, even if you start a new party that's popular, you can't break into the system. And that's been a perennial problem. I mean, I remember, I think it was the 2015 election or something, the U- UKIP got 5 million votes, didn't they? And they got one seat. And the Scottish National Party got 1 million votes and 52 seats. It was, <laughs> quite, it, was, it was astonishing. But I mean, you have this radical new party that's whatever you think of them, they get 5 million votes and no representation at all. It's just an insane system. And I don't know. It's te- it's it's almost ten percent of the vote. Yeah, and it's quite something. But um, um well, I'm a big. Don't know what, what to do about it, but it's a perennial problem. It is a perennial problem, and it is as though the system is designed to protect the system. Yes, which imagine that. in with your theory of the machine. Yeah, and you can't change it, and it's the same in Ireland. And you know, some people think that's its virtue because it stops revolution being possible. And at least in America, if you want to have a, like if we wanted to have a revolution in, you know, 1342 or something, or what was it, 1382, you know, peasants could all grab their sticks and march off to fight the powers that be. And the difference between armaments, between the peasants and the sticks and the soldiers with their swords is not that great. But now Mm. soldiers have got guns and tanks and ordinary citizens have got nothing. We haven't even got sticks. Mm. So we can't, we literally, the only way we have to rise up and revolt is through the ballot box. And the ballot box is designed to stop any change happening. You know, the two-party system entrenches it. So change is impossible politically. Mm. And the one way, funnily enough, where we got some change was the European elections every four years because they were PR. And so the Mm. Brexit party or Farage, UKIP, got a voice, was successful, and they were able to lobby... um, uh, the Tories into doing stuff, but now we've lost the European elections every four years, unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever. So I'm a big direct democracy guy. So I'm a big, you know, like I just, it's so obvious to me. Should drugs, should marijuana be legalized? We'll have a vote, get your phone out, have yes or no, have a vote. And then the politician becomes the administer, administrator of that vote. Something similar to that happens in Switzerland. You know, should, What's the ideal number of immigrants to have come into the country every year? That's a question that's not even discussed. What is the ideal number? Is it is it half a million or is it 50,000 or is it net zero? What is it? So and then you just have a vote and then you get your your answer. That's what the people want. And it's the role of the politician to administer it. Never going to happen. But if if we're designing utopia in Dominic Frisbee's utopia, you have land value tax, direct democracy and um and and there's a case, by the way, that you only get to vote if you pay tax, which is another thing in itself, because that stops the people, you, you know, the great George Bernard Shaw quote, um, a government promising to rob Peter to pay Paul can count on the support of Paul. So you've got that. And then the third thing we have is sound money. 
and uh, you know a government can't print money and that's then everything else you just get on with it and do whatever you want so if i'm adding if i'm adding to your utopian mix i would have to add radical localization to that mix um because for a start i don't think direct democracy works without radical localization so say that you could scale is everything i mean this is one of the the things i've perpetually banged on about for 20 years I mean, so say to take that point you made about immigration, how many people do we want coming in from elsewhere? Well, London might want a lot more people than Cornwall, right? Yeah. A, a small town might want far fewer people than a big city, which or a, a town with a big hospital or university in it might want lots of skilled immigration and another place might not want any. People might have different cultural opinions. At the moment, what happens is that whatever the British state based in London wants, the rest of the country has to suck up, whether it's about immigration or anything else. And that's true of every everywhere. If you had radical localization, right, proper direct democracy, say you've broken your country up into tiny little cantons, or just go back to the county system. In England, we've got counties. Yep. So what if every county had actual power? What if every county could decide what its house building policy was? And uh, what if every county could decide how it ran its health service? Again, it's a, it's pie in the sky stuff, but that's how you that's how things would be accountable. And then what you'd get as well, interestingly, is you get real diversity, because we hear a lot of talk about diversity. Um, and it's usually just uh, sort of skin deep propaganda stuff. But actual diversity would mean that different places would be different. And say you've got Bradford, where there's a large Muslim community, right? If you had direct democracy there, you'd get a very different result to what you get in the Cotswolds. You'd have a different culture. You'd have different things happening. People might not like this in different parts of the country, but that's what actual democracy would look like. Different places would genuinely be different to each other. Um, well, I agree with uh, 100%, Paul, and I'll add radical localization to the manifesto. Brilliant. Um, okay, you're, you're designing a political party here. You know that, don't you? <laughs> and is... let me add to your thing about diversity. I, I did a lecture um, at the Edinburgh Festival last year all about the history of weights and measures. And one of the reasons, like the technocrats, throughout all of history have been trying to standardize weights and measures and we used to use design weights and measures around the human body and but all people around the world aren't this so just because we didn't have weights and measures on our person the easiest thing to use to measure something out would be you know your hand to measure the height of an animal or your foot to measure a distance or a stride to measure a distance or your thumb pushed down to measure an inch but not everyone and surprisingly, these parts of the human body are surprisingly consistent. But what you had in pre-revolutionary, but the and the, the metric system instead goes, we're not designing something around the human body. We're going to design something around the Earth itself. And so the metric system was the distance from the North Pole to the equator and then divided by a million. And that's how you'd get a metre. Um, they, the guys who measured it cocked up the measurements so the, <laughs> and then they fudged the data. And so the measurement's actually inaccurate. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's one of the reasons why architecturally we, had, we have so little diversity today is because everyone uses the same system of measurement. Whereas, for example, in pre-revolutionary France, every town had its own slightly different system of weights and measures they used it because they were corrupt and they were using it to 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 fudge taxes so a pint in one town would be different to a pint in another town and so on but it also meant that because an inch in in one town or a foot in one town or a, a yard in one town was slightly different to somewhere else 
uh, and slightly different systems of measurement sprung up wherever you, you were. That's why there was so much colour and diversity in architecture around the world. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And of course, you've got the vernacular materials as well to to bring back the ecology back into the back into the discussion, right? True environmentalism. Different houses are made of different things depending on what materials are locally available. So you get absolutely you, you get your thatched cottages and your Cotswold stone and your North of England stone and everywhere again looks different. One of the things I wrote about in my book, Real England, unlike Richard, concrete. Yeah, bloody well. I mean, this is this is the thing. Here's talking of France when they when they brought when they had the revolution in France. One of the uh, wacky schemes that they had because the French Revolution was the first modern revolution, which means it was the first rationalist revolution. And the Bolsheviks took it even further in 1917. But the whole process of modernity, and this is a thing that the, the, the socialist left and the progressive left have always been very, very big on, is a process of rationalizing the world. It's about taking things away from the human scale and the vernacular and trying to create this giant rationalist utopia where everything's measured and everything's accountable and everything is the same and everybody's equal. So what they did in revolutionary France, they dropped this scheme after about three weeks because it was so insane. But they tried to break the entire country up into squares of land with, that were exactly the same um, in terms of the way, that, in terms of their measurements. And I think it was something like 100 meters square. The whole thing was going to be divided up into squares and then distributed according to whatever scheme they'd come up with. And it was it was too bonkers even for them, and they couldn't make it work. But it's it's part of the same the same mentality that, that as you say, re replaces the the weights and measures with something standardized. When I wrote my book, Real England, which is a kind of pie into sort of dying, irrational, awkward vernacular England. My favorite chapter was the one on pubs um, for obvious reasons, but you know, it used to be the case not so long ago that, um, and it still is the case to some degree. Now there's been a bit of a resurgence. It's a good news story, but there were, there would have been a different brewery in every town and a different beer in every town. And that beer would taste different because the water was different. Mm -hmm. And the hops would grow differently in different soil. And so the beer would taste different. So you had this incredible diversity of craft beer, which, as I say, has come back. So there's a success story. Yeah. But that's all about that's all about things tasting differently because they're in different places. And that's true of human culture as well. And that's exactly the thing that globalization, which is part of this rationalist modern scheme, exists to eliminate because it's, you know, it's irrational. It's awkward. It can't be measured. It can't be taxed. It can't be controlled. It can't be centralized. And so, you know, the, the machine, if you like, does not like it. The other thing you had, which I, I think is a great shame that's gone, is diversity of accent. Mm. So, you know, before mass media, I gather that every village, you know, 20 miles up the road, 10 miles up the road, even in Oxfordshire, people had different accents. And I remember when I was a little boy, I was listening out for accents and I could tell which part of London somebody was from by their accent. I don't think I could mm. do that now. Um, you know, now we've just got this homogenised, well, there's sort of two types of accent now in London. There's the sort of homogenised estuary blob, and then there's that sort of Jafakan Cockney hybrid, which is, you know, I occasionally catch my children speaking and Christ, they get a bollocking because it just is the ugliest accent I've ever heard. Um, but, you know, it, it's sort of monocultural, the accent. Mm. Well, everything becomes monocultural. And, and the other thing to talk about, since we're designing our utopia, is uh, is the impact of technology. Mm -hmm. Because the fact that everybody has a smartphone in their pocket and everybody is on YouTube and everybody's on Instagram and TikTok and whatever it is, 
means that your local culture, even if you were trying to protect it and keep it strong and nourish it and the rest of it, is just going to be overwhelmed by this tidal wave of stuff that's broadly very globalist and very American. One of the things I've noticed in Ireland is a lot of the younger children sound American. They've got American accents now. They don't have Irish accents because they're spending all their time on the internet. And it's really just, really just very depressing. Yeah. Now let um, me argue um, with, let me argue with there a sec, a second with you there, because this is, this takes us into the conversation about globalization. So by the way, the reason the Irish accent and the American accent sound similar, I mean, it is, it, it's a, it's a, it's a much shorter step from the Irish accent to the American accent than it is from the English accent to the American. That is true. That is true. Yeah. But, uh, and, and it's all to do with the Irish population of America, whatever, and the West country, what is called the reticulated R that is used in the West country and in Ireland that you wouldn't find in, in England, in London, I mean. And so the Australian accent is more like the East of England accent, the London accent, the Cockney accent, even the Dutch accent to an extent. And the American accent is more like the West Country and the Irish accent. But but even so, I take your point, but the beauty of the internet, I'm going to speak up in defence of it, as well as the homogenization of everything, it is also catered to niche interests in a way that, you know, mainstream media never could. So, for example, you know, there'll be some guy who maybe has a little fishing show or something, and he's got some technique of fishing that is really interesting to certain types of fishermen. And he'll put his little video up about fishing. And anyone who's interested in this particular type of fishing from around the world will congregate and watch this video, and they'll argue about it, and they'll discuss it. And similarly, um, you know, there's all sorts of weird little niche things. And then when you watch a... When I watch a little video and, and you know, maybe it's a Japanese guy and he's walking through a Japanese village and he's talking about something really specifically Japanese. I really like that video because it's, ah, this is Japanese and, and, and I didn't know about that. Rather, where, whereas if it's just some bland, you know, hip hoppy house in, in, in California or something with a load of naff modern Italian furniture in it. It's no interest to me. And, and, and so that kind of, I mean, it might be of interest to some people, but I, I do think the internet, as well as blandifying everything and homogenizing everything, it's also catered for a lot of niche interests and it, it enabled niche cultures to evolve. That is true. That is true. And, you know, my writing is one of those niche interests because I'm writing on the Internet at the moment. Yeah. and uh, People can pay for it and I can make a living out of it. So, yeah, that's obviously true. You're quite right there. And, um, you know, anytime I need to do something in my house or on my land that I don't know how to do, I can usually find a video on YouTube that will show me how to do it. Right. So that's true. But the paradox, the paradox is that both of these things are true. So the Internet is homogenizing the world and enabling the acceleration of this globalized machine culture and this culture of control. And at the same time, it's creating a kind of ecosystem where people don't who don't like that culture of control can find other people to talk to. But then the paradox is, is that a price worth paying? So say you can watch videos of guys walking around in Japan, but the very fact that they're on the internet and we're on the internet is homogenizing all of our cultures so they're becoming less distinctive and more like each other. Again, it's a theoretical question because it's not as if there's a big red button to turn it off. But if there was a big red button to turn it off, would you press the button? 
I don't think I would. Mm. Um, because I think if it's it's destroying us, but it's also what's going to save us. You know, yeah. you talk to Farage. I, I was I worked for GB News for a little bit, so I got quite matey with Farage. And he just said, he used to say, the internet made me. I would yeah, never have been, my movement would never have been anything without the internet. It's because those speeches I made in the European Parliament went viral. And then I'd be inv- invited on, uh, whatever it was, question time, and then people would watch it on the internet. So this whole kind of countercultural, counter technocracy, counter the machine, anti this, anti that, this whole anti movement, which it might just be my little bubble on the internet, but I think it's more powerful than the mainstream now, has been enabled by the internet. So I don't well, I think, think I would thing, switch it off. I think one thing the internet has done that's useful is basically destroyed or damaged the corporate media in a very useful way. So that, as you say, you can find sources of information, whatever you want to find. But at the same it's time... It's created yeah, it's, a new corporate media. It has. Well, I mean, it's done that as well. It will always do that because everything will end up concentrating. But yeah, but I mean, here's the, the thing the internet also does, of course, is it, crea- it creates addiction in everybody who's got a smartphone, especially in children. And yeah, it's, that is bad. It, it's, it's rapidly pushing AI culture, which is going to destroy how, God knows how many jobs and how many cultures. And of course, it also enables the the kind of the machinery of control which is which is building up around us if we didn't have smartphones we could not have had digital passports during covid and then we could not have been shut out of society as we were here in ireland if we hadn't taken a vaccine for example i couldn't go to the pub for six months because of my because of my medical choice um and it's of course it's the internet that enables the social credit system in china as well for example yeah and that is bad and and bias in ai is a massive problem and and also consensus in ai is a massive problem and yeah and the way that you know now it's all coming out with the twitter files and so on the way that um the internet was manipulated you know twitter youtube whatever were manipulated anti-trump and then the um the covid narratives the way and they were false they were wrong so that is bad Let's go from here, Paul. I want to talk about globalization, which is a, a word that's come up several times. And you've basically argued that it is not a good thing. Um, it's obviously, and you would, I'm sure you'd admit this, a bit more nuanced than that. Because while on the one hand, globalization leads to the homogenization and the concretization and the blandification of everything, um, on the other hand, I like the fact that I'm able to buy stuff from anywhere. And I like the fact that I'm able to sell my product to anywhere. And, you know, in our Anglo-Saxon heptarchy, I'd like to think that there's free trade between counties (laughs) and free trade between uh, the county of, of, of Wiltshire and and you know wiltshire county us and and wiltshire wherever wiltshire there must be a wiltshire in australia maybe there isn't but you know let's say take the word plymouth there's there's a plymouth in australia i think there's a plymouth in new zealand and there's a plymouth in in the uk and there's a plymouth in america i like that i would like there to be free trade between all the plymouths and and indeed between places that aren't called plymouth um so 
I kind of think there are good things to globalization. I like the fact that somebody is able to go anywhere in the world. Uh, so let's talk about maybe some of the merits of globalization as well as the evils of it. Yeah, well, you're not going to reverse it, are you? And it's not a new thing. Um, again, coming coming back to Ireland, I mean, there have been people coming here on boats for 10,000 years, right? I mean, uh, there's an, it's an interesting bit of genetic research I read which suggested that 85% of the men in Ireland are descended from Anatolian farmers from what is now Turkey, right? Because they came, this is an alternative, the, the genetics seems to be disproving some of the theories about how the Irish are mostly Celts from Central Europe, whatever that quite means, because we're not quite sure who the Celts are anyway. Um, a lot of them have come from the Middle East, up through the Mediterranean on boats uh, a long time ago, very long time uh, ago. And before, I think a lot of the time before, you could walk it. Well, before the yeah, certainly before the ice before the ice age, um, but even after that, uh, the sea lanes were much easier to navigate than the land. Um, and you know, we know that people have been trading worldwide for tens of thousands of years. You can find beads from all over the world in European graves from thirty thousand years ago. So, in that sense, that's and the Irish going... go the other way as well. There's no country yeah. in the world. That oh, the Irish going... go everywhere, yeah. yeah, and the British go everywhere too. So, I mean, this is you know, look, I mean, people have been moving forever. And people have been trading forever and people have been exploring and crossing borders forever. So that's not going anywhere. Um, the difference today, of course, is that technology allows everything to go hyper globalized extremely fast. So you've got record levels of population movement and migration. People can get on a plane and go to the other side of the world in 24 hours. We can trade everything with everywhere. So in a sense, you know, you're not doing anything about that until the system collapses, which it probably will. Then it's not going to contract. My reading of human history is that you just get these expansions of kind of machine societies of empires of technologically sophisticated civilizations and then they overreach themselves and they they collapse due to social or cultural or ecological problems are all three and then you get a you get a, a retribalization and then the whole process starts again um, and i think what we're in now is is the kind of the peak or maybe the beginning of a trough of of the kind of the globalized modern empire and who knows where it's going to go. But the thing about this, the, the stuff that you're talking about is you can have all these things. You just have to be prepared for the price that you're going to have to pay. I mean, there's a new book out, which I haven't read yet, but I've just taken delivery of. It's called Cobalt Red, and it's all about cobalt mining in Africa. Oh. where all, all, the, all the cobalt that is in everybody's smartphones comes from, which is basically modern slavery, right? All these young Absolutely horrific conditions that these children basically are, are mining poisonous cobalt in. Uh, so there was a video of, of a landslide in a cobalt mine that did the right rounds on the internet yeah, is, a few days ago. Oh this is God. the thing. So we're having all these conversations about how slavery in the British Empire was awful 200 years ago, which it was. But this, the slavery is still going on so that we can have the smartphones that we that we that we tweet on. And that's, you know, that's so that's, you know, I'm here on my computer, so I'm not pointing fingers at everybody else. Yeah, it's shut out of view, the price you pay, Right. That's the price you pay. So yeah. you can have the nice stuff. But you also have to have all the factories in China with the suicide net outside right. the window and the cobalt mines and all the rest of it. So the same 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 as it's ever been. You know, there's a price for the price for the luxury. Uh, yeah, and we're and our price is a thousand quid for a phone. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, really, you know, but they don't tell you where it comes from. Yeah, I, I mean, mean it's out of sight, yeah. out of mind. Paul, um, I, we've talked for an hour, and my experience with these interviews is that is that um, I don't have Joe Rogan's allure, and I can't talk for three hours and keep the audience going. After about an hour, people go right. We're going to do something else. 
So I've loved, I love speaking to you and I'm going to uh, recommend everyone watching that they subscribe to your Substack, which is. Um, it's called the Abbey of Misrule. It's just paulkingsnorth.substack.com, I think. Okay. And it, it's, it's, I've, I found I'm always reluctant to to upgrade. I'm a bit tight because I've subscribed to so many things, but I've recently upgraded. Your last essay was so engaging and you put that barrier right in the middle and you caught me and I was like, right, I'm going to have to upgrade. Um, but the, that was a shocking piece of capitalism from me. I apologize, <laughs> apologize for but, that. But, and and um, so get, I, I suppose if there's one thing you should do, subscribe to Paul's Substack and from there – you know, you can find out about his courses and so on, but his, I, I cannot, having done it myself, I cannot recommend his writing course in the West of Ireland enough. You are still doing that. Are you still doing that? Well, I haven't been doing it for a while, but I might start doing it again. I stopped doing it over COVID, so we'll, we'll see. But um, yeah, no, it's been, it's been, it's been really enjoyable. I'd completely forgotten that that compost heat poem was composed there. So I, I'm, I'm excited that that's being performed in London. <laughs> um, I, but I want to, before we close, Paul, I just, um, so I plugged your, your your letter and so on, but I want to ask you about um, the future. Where do you think this is going? And we've we've obviously talked for an hour of ideally where it's going, but where do you think it's actually going? Yeah, well, so. What... <sighs> Hang on. Before I answer you, I'm going to remove this noisy chicken that you may be able to hear in the corner of my room. Give me one second. I'll shouldn't, show it you be, what... shouldn't it be roosting? It should be. It is roosting, but it's being very noisy. <laughs> I love chickens. Do you not have foxes where you are? This is this is the culprit. This is this is the bantam that lives in the corner of our room because it's too cold to go outside. It's a Malaysian bantam, and you're supposed to be asleep, but you've been being very noisy. Sorry um, about so this. What, so what? So and does it not poo everywhere? Well, it's in a cage. This is my, my daughter is a chicken keeper and she bought these three Malaysian bantams, but we didn't realise they couldn't live outside with the other chickens. So they now live in a cage in the corner of our dining room. And, uh, it, I and don't do you, think you let them out in the day, do you? Uh, sometimes they come out in the day, but they quite enjoy their cage as well. This chicken has never been on the internet before. So it's, there <laughs> you go. Well done, you're a star. Now go back in and be quiet. Chickens are funny. They don't mind cages as long as they don't know any better. It's when they get used to the big wide world. They they kind of yes. feel safe in the enclosure of a cage. They don't mind their domestication, but um, yeah. Where do I think it's going? Do you not, I have, think, fox- uh, do you not have foxes? We do, do have foxes. Keep, do you keep we them all in the run? And we've had a we've had a fox attack, and we've had a uh, a pine martin attack as well. Yeah, we lock them up at night, and otherwise they get into trouble. But do you let do you let so, them out during the day? They run around in the day, and they jump into their own cages at night, and then we lock them in. Yeah, and the foxes don't get them in the day. No, well, they have. Uh, we had a fox attack one afternoon, but mostly the foxes uh, don't come out till the evening. Okay, in they here in London now, you see them walking along the street in the middle of the day. It's nuts. I think the urban foxes are much more hardcore than the the country foxes out here. They're they're quite they're quite careful. But, uh, no, uh, in London they're very bold. Urban everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's uh, the future is the future is urban foxes. Um, I think the future, the, the the future I can see at the moment, it's, it's kind of it's based on what we've been saying. There's almost three things you can see. There's, it, there's, on the one hand, there's a kind of breakdown going on. I think ecologically, there's a breakdown. Socially, in some places, there's a breakdown. I think economically, things will probably break down in a lot of countries as well. I just don't think we can sustain the course that we're on ecologically and, and economically. At the same time, you've got a kind of massive technological centralization which is leading us into this kind of future of 
artificial intelligence and monitoring of the population and control from the top. So it's a kind of combination of breakdown and clampdown, if you like, almost like a Chinese style future, I think is, is potentially what we're walking into. But then the third um, cheerier aspect of it is the thing we were talking about just now, which is all of the communities online and in the real world, which are kind of already curating a different way of seeing and starting to almost opt out of that already. That's what the last essay you were talking about that I wrote about was, was about. How do you actually opt out of that system of control and centralization if you want to? That's what alternative media sources are doing. And that's what online communities are doing. And that's what real world communities are doing. And I think it's going to, it's probably going to accelerate. So it's, it's, it's going to be, it's not going to be calm. Is it the next few decades? It's going to be, it's going to kick off in a lot of places and you never know quite where it's going to go. But those are the kind of the, the three aspects that I'd probably see happening. You know, the nation state, as we now know, it is a relatively recent construct. It's only about 200 years old. Yeah. Do you think the nation state will still be a thing in, in 50 or 100 years? Well, the thing about the nation state, as you said, is that it's a power centre that sustains itself. It's a system that keeps itself going. I mean, the way I always look at Britain, for example, is that it's still basically an empire. I think London and the financial centre of London, especially, and the landowning classes of Britain, have been running an empire for centuries. And they went out into the world and, well, the first thing they did was they colonised all the ordinary folk of Britain by enclosing their land and forcing them into the factory system. Then they went out and colonised people across the rest of the world. Then eventually they got booted out of the rest of the world. So they're just back running Britain as a kind of mini financial colony now. And it's a self-sustaining situation. So every state, you know this, every state will sustain its own power as long as it can. Yeah. But then having said that, nation states come and go. They don't last. Uh, and, you know, there's every possibility that they'll break up into smaller units. That seems to happen quite a lot. It does. It's all to do with tax. If yeah, they, well, it, as soon as they lose their tax revenue, they lose their power. It's also legitimacy. I and mean, that's the other thing I was writing about in that, that, that recent essay of mine. I feel like in the last few years, the last 10 years, maybe the state, the government, the authorities as a whole have just lost a lot of legitimacy with people. They have a lot, a lot of ordinary folk, you know, not political radicals, but everything from the Iraq war to COVID to Brexit to Donald Trump to whatever it was. Uh, and just the, the insane and obvious lies of the corporate media at this point. It's very difficult to trust those in authority. And once that sort of level of trust has gone, once there's not much authority left, you're not then, you know, anything can happen. Actually, it doesn't doesn't it's not necessarily a good thing that could happen. But it, but but anything could happen in terms of just people almost refusing the will of the state They're doing it in France right now. So, you know, you never know. Yeah. Good luck to him. Paul, thank you very much. Once again, paulkingsnorth.substack.com. And let's do another one in a few months and, and review where we are. Yeah, we could do it in six months and review the predictions. How about that? There we go. <laughs> Good to, to talk to you, Dominic. You too. And to you at home, thank you very much for watching, or maybe you're not at home, maybe you're in the car or, and you're listening in the car or you're watching on your phone, whatever. But thank you very much. And um, please subscribe to my Substack, theflyingfrisbee.com, where you're watching this video, or you might be watching it on YouTube, but you watched it first on the, fly, on the Flying Frisbee. And I'll be back with another video very soon. Goodbye.